Welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Tallon. Welcome to this episode. As you know, I'm a product manager from the world of business. And I'm a former Royal Marines officer. And together we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between, comparing and contrasting our experiences as together we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. Gareth. Today is another one of our influencers podcasts. It is. And I have to tell you, I've I've carefully worked out a mysterious intro to this week's influencer. And I'm going to ask you to suspend disbelief based on the fact that people downloaded the podcast and saw the name of the person we're going to talk about. But, you know, it's the first podcast of the new year, so I'm allowed a little bit of slack, I think. After the Christmas season or Christmas sure. and New Year's Well, season. Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you as well. And Happy New Year to all the listeners. Absolutely. May 2024 bring slightly less madness in the world and arguably slightly more resolution in some of the conversations we have as we work out what's going on around us. Uh, well, look, so today's influencer was one that I was reading a book And this particular character came up in the book. And what was fascinating to me was I knew this character. And then this particular book, and I'll elucidate a little bit later in the the episode, talked about them in the way that I'd never heard them discussed before. And so that sort of opened this up. So I'm going to use a uh, literary device. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question, which you will, by the way, just to be clear, if you answer this, you'll ruin the whole thing. So you're going to have to let me roll on this. So got it. The rhetorical question, which for everyone listening, pretend it's a real question, is I think we all know who I'm talking about when I make reference to perhaps one, if not the greatest European leader of the Second World War era. So all of you are thinking who that greatest leader is in Europe. Clearly, this person's armies fought against Nazi tyranny, tick, transformed its country and led it to a new post-war post-colonial future. This is a country that its history had been based on colonial sort of influence. And after the war, that changed dramatically. Very interestingly, incredibly popular during the war. And then after the war, declined in their powers before the country called them back. This is a country that became one of the great nuclear powers. A founder member of the United Nations who survived multiple assassinations and rewrote his country's constitution. So clearly this is not about Winston Churchill, but just before we even get started, isn't it fascinating that the person we want to talk about today, Charles de Gaulle, did all of these things that we lionise Winston Churchill for. We talk about all the time. It's part of our fabric of the country, you know, particularly in the last few years, people. And yet we've got someone who achieved exactly the same thing possibly even arguably more, and we don't talk about him. I would argue we don't talk about him because we are English and he is French, and so therefore we have conveniently not written him out of history, but written him out of our narrative and our history. But I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, striking parallels. It's interesting. You you were saying you you knew about Charles Gould and then had sort of forgotten. I think I only really know about Charles Gould from the British narrative perspective. And I know we've sort of had a few discussions over the last couple of weeks while you've been doing the research. So I, I, I have a sense of what's coming, but I don't think I understand this person 
anywhere near as well as I should do and hopefully will do at the end of this episode because I've learned it from the British perspective. Just, just a couple of other things to sort of warm us up to it as well. Fascinating how much he, and I'm going to use this word carefully, I was going to say the word hated, and if you read the language he used, hated might be said. I'm going to say disliked, Americans and British. Right. And this is a man who was not afraid to their faces of saying, I do not like you. That's fascinating. And the other thing as well, as, as sort of I was reading this, who, who managed to create a country, and his personality drove this, that remained independent whilst also remaining part of the fabric of Europe. And, and it's a really odd thing. You could say, this is a man who took France away from Europe and was more independent. But you could equally argue this is a man that made sure that France was a core part of Europe. And you only have to look at today and you see that France has never been, as it were, a stronger part of Europe. And another one of those things in terms of influences is who, who managed to come from nothing into a to become a leader of France. So today is all about Charles de Gaulle. And what we'll do is we'll do what we normally do is sort of a little bit of a trot through history where he came from. And I think there's an awful lot of areas to discuss. And again, just like with all of our influences, I absolutely don't have all the answers on this. And actually, this is one where I feel most nervous, given your point, that as British people, it is not fashionable to think or talk about Charles de Gaulle. Yeah. And so genuinely, if there's people listening to this and they're like, you don't understand the impact he had, the positives and negatives, please do come and talk to us. So let's actually, just before I start, you are my everyman. You're yep. my man on the Clapham <laughs> omnibus. What do you know about Charles de Gaulle? So clearly wartime leader of France. I know that he wasn't necessarily the choice uh, or the first choice of either the Americans or the British. And I know that he went from relatively low-ranking officer to leader of France in a very, very short space of time. Um, as you said, he came back post-war to lead the country again. And I know that that was a time that was sort of mired by the crisis in Algeria. It was still recognised as part of France at the time. And there was, yeah, all sorts of troubles there. And I think that was in the 50s. Apart from that, I don't know a huge amount about how he progressed from junior officer, not probably in the line of sight for yeah. being the leader from, yeah. from the British or the American side. I don't know the journey. Probably everything I do know is slightly sort of biased through the lens. Well, of... not, maybe maybe biased isn't the right word here, but but over overlooked by Winston Churchill. And so, you know, when we're looking for our yeah. heroes, we're looking for our national heroes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, look, um, Charles-André Joseph, that's probably how they said in France, isn't it? But, yeah. Uh, Marie de Gaulle, anyone who's called Marie, I like. Yeah. Born 22nd November 1890 and died only in 1970, actually. Okay. It was not that long ago. That was um, for, for not that I'm counting a year before I was born. At school, ostensibly not an outstanding pupil. And the moment I read this, I was, oh, look, we say this in it, literally every single influencer, yeah. typically. Um, not, not an outstanding pupil. 
But like many of the leaders that we've talked about, obviously we, we have a little bit of a, a, a an angle towards the military. He joined the army as a private in 1909, serving in the 33rd Infantry Regiment. Okay. Um, but that was because at that time you had to serve a year as a, a private before you could study to become an officer. Right, okay. okay he so did intend to do that. He, he did, and then he went to uh, the Military Academy in Sancerre. I think that's the correct pronunciation, C-Y-R Sancerre. Um, and then went back to the 33rd uh, Infantry Regiment. I love all the little details. He was nicknamed, his nickname in the regiment was the Great Asparagus. Excellent. You're going oh. to have to explain that. Uh, well, apparently because of his height, right. his forehead and his nose. He was six foot five, interestingly. He? He's a very tall man. I'm still not quite clear why a tall, high-foreheaded and large-nosed person should be called asparagus. Perhaps that's French... French humour that we haven't quite connected to in the UK. And by the way, I'm sure they would say the same of us. But when he passed out of the military academy, he was 13th. And it's interesting, you sometimes get those sort of inklings of are these stars or not stars. I think the point that, that, as I read a little bit more about it, by then he'd found his place. This is what yeah. he wanted to do. He wanted to be in the military. Stop me as we go through, because I've realised that I often talk about these things like everybody knows these things. But his commanding officer was a certain Philippe Pétain. And so for those of you who are not familiar, and actually he comes back again and again in the story, Philippe Pétain in the First World War was declared effectively the saviour of France. Yeah. Um, he was brought in as a wartime leader. It was a little bit later. And Pétain was this, this enormous hero. So bearing in mind this is before then, but that's he first met Pétain when he joined the, the, the 33rd Infantry Regiment. And he uh, apparently, de Gaulle later wrote in his memoirs, my first colonel, Pétain, taught me the art of command. So there was a real influence there by yeah. Pétain. And I actually quite liked, you know, this podcast is all about command and leadership. It was just quite interesting as I read that, the art of command. As he, so he's, he's already thinked about that. Mm. And together... They developed what is described as a mutual admiration. So if you think about it, de Gaulle as a junior officer and, and Patan, not as a marshal at this point, yeah. but certainly a more senior officer. And they had, and it's been an absolute joy this episode, reading some of the quotes. Uh, their mutual admiration was apparently based on their, quote, shared belief in the strength of firepower and the spirit of the bayonet charge. I think these were mm. slightly different days when that, that, was a, that was a thing. So... That's how he got into the military. And of course, the first major influence in his life in terms of military was, of course, the First World War. And unsurprisingly, he was a decorated officer. He was wounded several times. And actually, and I suspect formatively, he was taken prisoner by the Germans as well. So if we go back to his, his wartime career in the First World War, two days after war was declared, he uh, encountered the German army at the Meuse River. And then the then Lieutenant de Gaulle led his section and charged straight into the enemy machine guns. And along with many of his men, and of course this new, more mechanised warfare, he fell almost immediately taking a bullet in the leg. So he was, he was wounded two days into the war. Wow. But he came back to his regiment in October 1914 and was appointed 
regimental adjutant. And you're, now we start to see a courageous, almost foolhardy de Gaulle as, despite his staff position. So as adjutant, he would have been notionally, not necessarily not in the fighting, but certainly sort of a, a step or two back. It, it's a staff. It's a staff role. Yeah, it's a staff so role. An adjutant in a unit is in charge of junior officers' discipline and is effectively the private secretary, if you like, to the commanding officer. So will arrange the commanding officer's diary, will do a lot of the staff work and paperwork around organising the unit and is effectively the aide of the of the commanding officer. So, well, well, apparently this was not enough for de Gaulle. <laughs> he volunteered to lead a number of reconnaissance missions into no man's land, so he clearly wanted to get close to the fight. And as a result, he earned the Croix de Guerre in, in 1915. So there is a man who's not willing to wait. Yeah, I was going to say that there's clearly in the First World War, there was it was very difficult to avoid the fight because it was you know if if your unit was on the front line it was on the front line but for the adjutant to be leading reconnaissance patrols i would imagine that is a volunteer rather than a well being you, told we could even go one step further because i think the word bullheaded mm. is one that we you could easily draw an assumption from i wonder whether he was like this is what i'm going to go and do and i'm i'm not waiting around so uh, first Battle of Champagne, uh, he was wounded again and shot in the hand. So this was a man who was at the sharp end yep. and had been wounded. And he fought at Verdun in Fort Douaumont. So for those of you who aren't familiar with your World One history, and again, it's this fascinating thing where I grew up learning or hearing the word Somme and wipers and all these yep. sorts of places. Arguably the single... Worst crucible in France was in a place called Verdun, which was French only. Yeah. And um, the French and the Germans fought themselves effectively to a standstill, but it was very close on either side. So this, for the French, uh, Verdun is is almost religiously viewed with religious sort yeah. of uh, respect in terms of the people that fought at Verdun. Anyway, he was captured at Verdun. So all of a sudden now his war is over yeah. and he is in German hands. Pétain, who clearly was still very, very uh, connected to him, uh, believing him dead, awarded uh, de Gaulle Légion d'honneur. So this is a man who, a couple of years into the First World War, has already been awarded a number of very high measures of bravery in yes. the French army. Yeah. At that point, I'm going to sort of pause slightly because looking back to when we talked about Rommel, very, very, very similar in terms of um, this is where they learned their craft. Yeah. This is and there'll, there'll be more of these echoes later. So interesting to see these parallels. Now, were they unique? I'm sure they were not unique because there was a lot of people involved in this conflict. But it's certainly interesting to see that, that there's notionally there's a smaller group of people who keep receiving these awards yeah. and keep performing yeah, this Yeah, definitely way. a link. I wonder, because I think we're obviously looking at this with hindsight, but if you don't know what de Gaulle is going to go on to do and become, nothing there says grand strategist. Agreed. That is bravery, it's tactical leadership, it's 
small union Agreed. engagement. You know, and, we, and we had the whole discussion when we did the episode on Rommel about whether he was a great tactician, a great operational commander, or a great strategist. In a similar way, at the moment, you wouldn't necessarily, you would say, brilliant soldier, you know, has got a career in the military that's probably he's going to be very successful if he survives. But you wouldn't necessarily say, this is a man who has ambition beyond the military, who's going to be, you know, leave his mark, not just in France, but on, on the world stage. So if you then wanted to become a strategist or you were naturally inclined, what would be something that would be really useful? I know... 32 months where you have no other thing, no other, no other activities other than to sit, think and meet people. Mm. And this is exactly what de Gaulle did. First of all, he used this time to learn German. So he learned German because he wanted to understand the Germans more. Yeah. At this time, the assumption was forever we'd be fighting the Germans. And he also started working on theories of warfare. He yeah. met Roland Garros. So I wasn't actually that familiar with Roland Garros and we know him from tennis tournaments, the Roland Garros tennis tournament. He was, in fact, a French aviator. Right. Okay. And he sat down and taught de Gaulle theories about air power. Right. He said, yeah. there's this thing called the aeroplane, and I can imagine we can do those. He also met the future Russian field marshal Mikhail Nikolaevich Tukhachevsky, I can never know. Again, I'm, I'm, I think we're deciding that not only am I poorly read, but I'm not very good at pronouncing names. Uh, but Tukhachevsky was, as I say, a Russian field marshal. And he was a field marshal who was particularly interested in the future of mechanised warfare. And he'll come back a little bit later. De Gaulle also drafted his first book, La Discarte chez l'Ennemi, The Enemy's House Divided. And this... This is a man who's starting to think strategic thoughts. Yeah. He was arguing that Germany had failed at Verdun, not because of the inherent strength of the French defence. In other words, it wasn't strong enough, but because the Germans lacked the strength and will to push the attack. So he was yeah. starting to think, OK, why are we winning? Why are we losing? There's an interesting discussion here about... So we talked about tactical success and the, the honours and awards that have, have come with that. And I, I wonder if the relationship is to go on to do great things, having those awards on your CV marks you out and therefore there is more interest, I suspect or whether that. it's a character trait of the types of people that are driven, and, and of course it's not everybody, but people that are successful in some fields are likely to be successful in other fields. I, I don't know, and I, I suspect it's probably a combination. I suspect of the two. it's a combination, but I, I have to agree with you, which is Marshal Tukhachevsky, or whatever rank he was then, there's this chap called de Gaulle. Why would I speak with him? Well, he has Légion d'honneur, Croix de Guerre. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now maybe I'll speak to him. But this, I think this is the whole point of influencers was for us to sort of draw out some of the things that we could maybe apply today. And I think this is a really good one, which is this idea that there is time for them to not just be worried about what's the next attack. Yes. It's, it's yeah. the ability to pause, to work with other people, talk to other people, explore yeah. ideas, develop extra skills. And it's something which I would argue, particularly in the civilian world, I think it's a little bit different in the military, but in the civilian world, if you're good at doing a thing, you will carry on doing that thing. And if perhaps... 
you there is an opportunity for promotion, you'll carry on doing that thing only at a higher rank. This, and I'm I'm perhaps pushing this point a little bit more, but um, I think it was 32 months. That gives you a lot of time to actually take the lessons you've learned yeah. and evolve them. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I think these are, you know, De Gaulle, we did Paddy Main and David Sterling and the last influencers. We, we looked at Rommel. You know, these are military people, and so they are thinking about the future of warfare. But if you abstract back from that, what they're effectively doing is looking at how emerging technologies are going to change the character of the field of professional arms that they're in, in the same way that perhaps somebody in Silicon Valley might think about today how, I don't know, bioengineering and Casper gene editing is going to affect the world of pharmacology mm. or you know it they're thinking out about potential futures which by its nature requires strategic thought because you can't know everything you and have to have a sense of what is what is happening and it's that interplay between behaviors groups of people's behaviors and technologies and it's never as simple as this technology is going to have yeah. this effect. So they are, within the field of professional arms, within military thinking, strategizing about how that affects the way of the character of warfare, the way of war. And, and it's really interesting. And I suspect a lot of people were thinking about these things. But the people who have the time and the thought, as well as some practical experience from which to have that context to take it forward, become great leaders later on. Well, and I wonder how you, I mean, I'll ask you in a minute about the, the British military, but apart from doing a formal qualification where you might go away back to university and work, it's not clear to me that there are many modern avenues by which you can say there is a portion of your time which not only are you able to think, but we want you to think. And actually, it's not that you have to deliver something we just want you to think so anyway we'll come back to this because actually there's there's a lot more that goes on in the interwar period again very much like Rommel but this this made me smile in the way that the characters that we have talked about can so you'll be unsurprised to know that Charles de Gaulle attempted to escape on five occasions you could argue, obviously, he wasn't very good, but let's put that to one side. Well, I mean, you've got to be careful because escaping from a prisoner of war camp or, or not easy is, isn't necessarily the easiest. In an thing. Occup in the, yes, well, look, uh, the bit that made me smile was less that he <laughs> failed, but more. And I read this, and it, it made me properly chuckle as I was doing this research. He attempted to escape first of all by hiding in a laundry basket, second by digging a tunnel. Digging through a wall, and my final one, even posing as a nurse. Lovely. <laughs> Probably not a very attractive nurse, I suspect, but he was a nurse. I love that. Yeah. I think there's a, maybe maybe this is tenuous link, but there's some creativity for you. A man yeah. who says, yeah. I'm going to think of lots of different ways to escape. It, it's it's tenacity, creativity. Yeah. And, and again, these are, you know, if that was the end of the story, if this was a hero of the First World War, captured five escape attempts, there's probably enough in there that you can still do a podcast, you can still write a book about 100%. this character, 
And yet, this is still just the very beginning. And this is the beginning. So, you know, well done. First World War is over. He's released. Between the wars. So he is sent to join the French military mission to Poland as part of the Polish-Soviet War of 1919-21. You'll be pleased to know, listeners, I had no idea there was a Polish-Soviet War of 1919-21. So no. it turns out there was actually a bit of fighting going on. If each of these influencers were just carbon copies of the other, this could be very, very dull. It turns out they're not. After an exercise, when de Gaulle was playing the commander, he refused to answer a question about supplies. So, tell me, uh, who talks... What's the phrase? Amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. Exactly. And he said, I refuse to answer. And he replied in Latin, de minimis non curat praetor, which roughly translated, because my Latin is a little bit rusty, is a leader does not concern himself with trivia. (laughs) Now, we, Mm. we can laugh about that. But I think this is a man who is very confident yep. and is there is no room for uncertainty with this man. I believe this is not important. This is trivia. Go away. So that's interesting. And I think th- this as an example is we've we've just met the de Gaulle who arguably is beginning to form in the way we know. Yeah. And I, I think there's a really interesting, I mean, it's a counterfactual history that we'll, we will never know, but... We know the story of de Gaulle in the Second World War, where, yes, he was a great military leader, but he wasn't an operational commander because he didn't really have too much opportunity. Well, what an interesting statement. Was he a military leader in the Second World War? What unit did he command in the Second well, World War? Yeah, it, quite. But, but what I mean is... Yes, yes. I, I, uh, he was a leader and an influencer, but he wasn't an operational commander. Correct. And so perhaps... If he had have been, if France wasn't occupied and he hadn't had to evacuate and base himself out of out of London, yeah, perhaps he would have been found wanting as a as an operational commander and therefore would never have. Well, we'll come on to this. Actually, to... his his wartime operational command was brief, and I think it's given that it's briefness, it's very difficult to make any judgments. But it wasn't staggeringly successful. He spent the the time between the war lecturing and writing. So he's developing his strategic ideas. And he's also serving in a variety of positions. Uh, Occupation duty in the Rhineland. Back with Pétain. He was on Pétain's staff in Paris. So you can imagine right now Pétain is the hero of France. Yeah. He literally, literally was declared to be the saviour of France. So when you say he was lecturing and writing, presumably that is lecturing at... Staff colleges, war colleges, Correct. and writing about Correct. ways of warfare. Yeah. And he did a tour in Lebanon, so it wasn't okay. just in France. Uh, he was a member of the French War Council. And in 1937, as we come towards the, the Second World War, he took command of a tank regiment. Obviously, we go back to him talking to Tukhachevsky. Yeah. He's, he's a real Marmite character, de Gaulle. And I, I, often we say, I, you know, there'll be experts that would deny this. I'm pretty sure no one would deny he's a Marmite character. And for those of you who don't know Marmite, Marmite is this uh, spread you put on your toast in the mornings that people either love or they hate. So Marmite is literally you love him or you hate. Um, Polarising figure. Absolutely. Yeah. So in France, a really important point at this time was they did not want to have another First World War. 
And so therefore, the Maginot line was a critical part of the fundamental doctrine of the French army. Yeah. And that was, we want to make sure that the Germans don't even make it onto French soil. And so a what you might describe as a static defence, they poured enormous amounts of money into this static defence. And by the way, at this point, the French army was the largest army in the world, even larger than the British army. And so this was huge. Anyway, in his writings, de Gaulle started to argue that actually this might not be the right strategy. And he argued that tactics should be based on circumstance rather than inflexible doctrine. So there's a man yep. here going, let's not just do what it says we should do in the books. We should talk about how things work. And it starts to sound a lot like many of the British and German officers in terms of thinking about armoured warfare thinking about manoeuvre warfare. We've talked about Rommel. Uh, we've mentioned in the past Percy Hobart, who yeah. was another hugely influential British officer talking about... Another how, creative. Another creative, yeah. how wars could be won. It, it's interesting that when, if you just read that line about plans should be based on... I can't remember exactly what it said, but plans should be based on the, on the context. Tactics should be context-dependent, not based on a enduring doctrine. doctrine. And we, several times, in various different conversations about different subjects, have talked about the importance of you know, your, your doctrine not becoming a dogma, having the flexibility to adjust to changing conditions. You know, we, we did, we've done an episode on John Boyd, and then we obviously did a follow-up episode with Mark McGrath on, on UDA, and the whole concept, so OODA, in terms of observe, orient, decide, act, and the whole concept of recognising that there are externalities that will change the conditions and therefore you need to build in flexibility and agility into your planning. Yeah, in For him to be talking about that in 1937 or, or where it was just pre-war, it, it does show he's a thinker, he's a strategist, and he's already starting to identify some of the winning tactics and winning concepts that, firstly, the Germans are about to employ against them, against the French and the failure of the Maginot Line, but also that have endured to this day as how... Well, I was going to say, I think... That how we fight and how we operate and how business evolves and how agility and adaptability is becoming crucial to you know, business strategies for, for organisations today. Well, and just to make that point, so that the, the, the quote was, tactics should be based on circumstances rather than inflexible doctrine. And I would imagine everyone listening to this says, well, of course. He said nothing clever there. And yet, arguably today, the Russians in Ukraine are to a significant degree sticking to their inflexible doctrine. They are fighting the way that their doctrine says they fight and there are notionally limited changes. You can go back to our old friend Kodak. Kodak, we sell film. Film is what we sell, we sell film, and they failed. So I, I think that's interesting. What was odd is that at this point, rather than being seen as the bright star of the future, he was considered a pretty average officer. I, and I'll, I'll talk about what that means, but I wonder whether that's an element of some of the things he is saying are, are not what should be said. You should support our doctrine. Yep. I suspect he's been really annoying lots of people, as we will see later on as you start writing it down. He was frequently passed over. And at that time, Patan's support for him started to diminish because Patan was 
the man that said, no, he was one of the architects of this sort of Maginot line. We won't let the Germans come. You know, it will be static. We will create these incredible static defences and will never go past us. And that, that leads to an interesting question about whether there was some cultural dynamics in the French military system that meant a rising star such as de Gaulle wasn't able to rise, were the problems in the culture, or alternatively, there are some problems in de Gaulle's style. Again, I've got to believe... It, it, we don't know, we but don't I have know. to believe it's a, it's a mix of those things. There's the person yeah. saying things I don't want to hear, but more than that, he really annoys me and he's saying all the things I don't want him to say. Yeah. And all of a sudden, well, he used to be Patin's favourite and now Longy's favourite. So, very interesting. He, in 1936, we're rushing towards the Second World War. He commanded armoured forces and he distinguished himself in battle fighting against Tukhachevsky's Red Army. Oh, really? So, how interesting yeah. that he's now fighting against the man that he started talking to about armoured warfare and he fervently believed that the mobility and firepower that he would get from tanks would enable along with aircraft by the way would enable a return to the offensive so if you wanted me to summarize the french argument post-world war one is we do not want to be an offensive army that's we should be a defensive army yeah. we will prevent the germans from coming onto french soil and that is how we will stop the slaughter i mean th- yeah rather than being um sort of judgmental about this French strategy, the French had lost an enormous number of their young men. Yeah. They did not want that to happen, so this was driving. But he he had already moved on, and he was saying, we can talk about the offence. And, yeah. um, and you can start to see there the mindset of an older generation who haven't had to consider or have the experience of manoeuvre warfare in a mechanised age thinking logically but perhaps based on a, a a set of conditions that are no longer valid versus a man who as, as we've already heard has read thought played around with concepts of how future technologies are going to change the character of war and is already starting to recognize the fact that you can't defend statically in maneuver warfare there's an interesting question here this is clearly a different way of thinking about warfare. Would he have thought that way if he hadn't been captured? I don't know. Isn't it no, interesting? Yeah. If, if he'd been surrounded, if he'd have spent, uh, you know, another three years fighting on the front, saw three, year more, three years more of colleagues dying, surrounded by French soldiers, surrounded by that, would he have changed? So yeah. maybe there's another shout out for diversity. So I, I'm reminded of two other leaders military military officers that had a similar you know opposed view to to the accepted wisdom or the perceived wisdom of how things are done and that's um, a guy called admiral jackie fisher who may well emerge as one of our influencers at some point because i think his story is, is really interesting but he was able to change the way the royal navy operated because he was a divergent thinker but was also the first sea lord and mm. so was in a position to to change the way that the royal navy operated and 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 did so in a in a quite substantial way and the second person is a guy called billy mitchell who was a brigadier general in the army air corps in the united states who in the interwar period 
between the First and Second World War, saw the value of air power and predicted the uh, centricity of aircraft carriers and therefore, in a very similar way, obviously in a maritime context, was talking about the defence of the United States where the Royal, uh, sorry, the United States Navy was still thinking about battle cruisers and battleships and he was talking about manoeuvre warfare from the air and was effectively, in fact, I think he was eventually dishonourably discharged. Because he didn't agree with Because them. he didn't agree. Yeah. Um, and he was adamant about his views and pushing the Pentagon. And eventually he was discharged. Uh, and posthumously, later in life, that dishonourable discharge was dissolved and his wife got his pension yeah. and all the rest of it. Um, as, as retrospectively, they realised that he was, he was right. But I'm, I'm reminded of those people... Um, and and it, yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I wonder if there's a book to be written of around this era. Could you could you find ten people that fundamentally shaped the next fifty to one hundred years of military? I I also think there's a uh, there's a parallel to where we are now, and there's, there's pro- it's probably a parallel that is you know continuing well, through isn't, time. Isn't this? But the we're thing now is... talking about you know AI, quantum computing, gene editing, all of these supposedly or potentially revolutionary technologies but isn't this the trick isn't this the the challenge which is always which is how do you find the revolutionary thinkers who are actually providing the value because for every de gaulle who said we should think about maneuver warfare and we shouldn't go on the offensive there was probably 20 people saying ah i've got this great idea it's called the maginot line this will change warfare for the rest of the world so yeah i'm i'm gonna take us to a break because Annoyingly, we've 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 come up to the Second World War, and De Gaulle's a nobody. He's a nobody. Who cares? This isn't someone that's going to change the world. This isn't going to be someone that's going to laugh at the Americans as a as a nation. Um, so let's let's go away, come back, and then let's sort of accelerate through the Second World War, and more importantly, beyond the Second World War. So uh, we'll see you after the break. Welcome back. We left the influencers just before the break with the dramatic statement that de Gaulle is a nobody. <laughs> nobody cares about him. Well, and actually, yeah. well, no, but it's important. One of the last things that I, I should have said maybe a little bit more was by this point, Patin does not like de Gaulle. Yeah. De Gaulle is not one of his men anymore. So, so he, he's a middling, a middle ranking officer. He's got some good ideas. Passed but, over. But he's not liked. He, yeah, has, has not been highlighted as you know future, future France exactly yeah. so he's a middling officer at a time where as you said the, the French army is massive and I don't want to I don't want to make out that he was a loser that this was terrible I mean actually, no, as we go into the second world war but he's not you know he's not climbing through the ranks he's quickly. not climbing through he's the ranks not, nobody at this point is going to be backing him to be the future leader of France exactly so there's a really interesting story you're going to tell so outbreak of Second World War, de Gaulle's commanding a tank brigade attached to the French Fifth Army. It was formed under the then Colonel de Gaulle on the 15th of May 1940. Remember that date. We'll come back to that in a second. And he fought in the Battle of Montcornet and the Battle of Abbeville. 
I should know the results of this battle. I don't think it was particularly decisive. I can say that because I think the French lost in the end. Yeah. So it probably wasn't that decisive in the end. But he was then uh, promoted to the rank of brigadier general. I think at that point, things were starting to move quite fast. Uh, he became a brigadier general on the 1st of June, 1940. So he is a general, yeah. and hence the phrase General de Gaulle that you might have heard. Yeah. But to, to, as a reminder, and and no bad thing, this is the most junior general. Yes. And clearly... At a time where lots of army officers are getting promoted quickly. Exactly. Because they're mobilising. Well, and because people who aren't successful are being fired and things like that. Um, So he has just been promoted uh, to Brigadier General. What is the first thing the man does? He goes to Paris and uh, goes to visit his tailor to be fitted for his general's uniform. Ah. Interesting. That's quite good. I suspect there was an element of him wanting to make sure everyone knew he was a general. But at the time, I think that was also being uh, close to Paris and close to the government. So uh, Renault, who was part of the French government uh, uh, at that point, appears to offer him a job in the government for the first time. And afterwards, the commander in chief, Vagan, Maxime Vagan, congratulated him on savings uh, saving France's honour and asked for his advice. So now all of a sudden, yeah. he's starting to be drawn closer to the government. And to be clear, Pétain is not part of the government at this point, or he's not that influence. Uh, and on the 2nd of June, he sent a memo to Vagon urging that the French armoured divisions be consolidated from four weak divisions into three strong ones. He is advising the government on how yeah. to use their armoured warfare. Again, spoiler alert, it's not going to work well for them. Uh, the, the Germans managed to uh, overcome the French. But I think arguably that, that's less about the decisions about restructuring. Correct. That is a... Correct. There's a fundamental strategic problem that we've already talked about. 100%. And, but and any operational tinkering with the force structure... Is not going to make going a massive difference at this so point. I don't think that but decision is... Not at all. A... You're absolutely right. But but notice he's been sort of drawn into the government. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, then the de Gaulle we know starts to appear. So first of all, he's a general. Um, he refuses to accept his government's armistice with Germany when the French surrender. And so he flies to England and he exhorts the French to continue the fight on the 18th of June. So going back to the point I said about remember the date 15th of May. Yeah. On the 15th of May 1940, this man is a colonel in the French army. Yeah. Who? By the 18th of June, he is just about to broadcast on the BBC to France notionally as the de facto leader of France. And is that is he the most senior he is not French soldier to have refused to accept the armistice? Oh, and that's an excellent question. I I don't know. I don't know. There were not many senior French officers who didn't stay in France. And, stay. and and yeah. actually it's very, very important to say this. This is this is a lesser known fact. Um Many of the French soldiers who were evacuated in Dunkirk said, we're French, we're going back to France and returned to France. So the idea of leaving France, um, that was unusual. So this is less than two months and he's gone from being a colonel of an armoured division or an armoured unit to notionally the leader. And this is where the... 
the 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 sort of the the, the story of de Gaulle really starts. So he um, uh, he broadcasts to France uh, as part of the BBC work, and um, people talk about this as the beginning of French resistance. The reality was nobody was listening really, yeah. and in fact, that this this is repeated later. But of course. This is the speech that people remember, even if the, the, the facts around Iran is interesting. And so I'm going to, if you will, if you will allow me, I wanted to read this out because I want you to picture. Yeah, please do. Charles de Gaulle. This is so this is what he said on that on the 18th of June on the BBC. The leaders who for many years were at the head of French armies have formed a government. So he's referring to the French government now in France. Yeah. This government, alleging our armies to be undone, agreed with the enemy to stop fighting. Of course, we were subdued by the mechanical ground and air forces of the enemy, infinitely more by their number, or infinitely more than their number, sorry. It was the tanks, the aeroplanes, and the tactics of the Germans which made us retreat. It was the tanks, the airplanes, and the tactics of the Germans that surprised our leaders to the point to bring them where they are today. But has the last word been said? Must hope disappear? Is defeat final? No. Believe me, I speak to you with full knowledge of the facts and tell you that nothing is lost for France. The same means that overcame us can bring us to a day of victory. For France is not alone. She is not alone. She is not alone. She has a vast empire behind her. She can align with the British Empire that holds the sea and continues the fight. She can, like England, use without the limit the immense industry of the United States. This war is not limited to the unfortunate territory of our country. This war is not finished by the Battle of France. This war is a worldwide war. All the faults, all the delays, all the suffering do not prevent there to be in the world all the necessary means to one day crush our enemies. Vanquished today by mechanical forces, we will be able to overcome in the future by a superior mechanical force. The destiny of the world is here. I, General de Gaulle, currently in London, invite the officers and the French soldiers who are located in British territory or who would come there with their weapons or without their weapons. I invite the engineers and the special workers of armaments industries who are located in British territory or would come there to put themselves in contact with me. I, I overemphasize the me there. <laughs> Whatever happens, the flame of French resistance must not be extinguished and will not be extinguished. That's not a bad no. speech. No, and, and it, I, I didn't know anything about you know, the early years of de Gaulle, but from everything you've talked about, you can see the logic and the thinking that's driven him to this point. The fact that he's saying there is hope and there is birth you know, two very, very good reasons. One is our strategy was wrong and that's why they won and we can change it and we've got the strength of the empire and the, and the allies. There is a whole line of thinking from sitting in a prisoner of war camp in the First World War up to that speech, which is very, very clear. But I also think, and we'll touch on this, I suspect, over the next few minutes, there's a massive element of luck in what happens next. Well, there is, but I, I want to go back to the speech because I think it's an incredibly insightful speech. And yes. actually, it's insightful even more so today. So we 
we have a narrative in the United Kingdom that we, the brave few, <laughs> stood up against the might of the German army and by sheer pluck and stiff upper lip, we beat them. Well, that and a massive empire with millions of people, yes. huge GDP, yeah. and an ability to mobilise enormous amounts of people. Yeah, it was, our, it was our war to win. It was our war to win. But also the point that by, and, and Churchill knew this, by aligning with, with the United States... This was, and so he's yeah. already saying this. He's already saying, I can already strategically see yeah. the future of this battle is going to be decided by the empires. And so I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So he, as I say, nobody listened to this. And actually, later on, they, they start to sort of get him to do it again. But I, the other thing there was a very clear statement I, General de Gaulle, yeah. Come to me. Yes. This is a man saying, and this made lots of people very, very nervous, the British and the Americans. This is a man saying, I am France. And there was no democratic reason for him to be France. Yeah. But he simply said, I am France. But I, I wonder whether that's the man's ambition and, you know, the drive to be the leader, or whether it was actually he felt that he was forced into that position being the only person who I, hasn't given in. And this is from his perspective, of course, but you know, if, if he thinks that you know, the armistice, the, the government that has remained in France has effectively colluded with the enemy and given in, you know, is this him making a pitch because there's an opportunity or is this him feeling that I you know, think this I, is a sense of duty? This is, this is where we'll, we'll, I will never know and people will get angry either way. I think there is an enormous sense of duty about the man. I think he loves France more than anything else. But I also think this is a sense of, uh, this is my opportunity to be, be in charge. And there are lots of examples later. So we'll talk about this later and after the war. The British government were were very, very thoughtful that said, we cannot replace the German occupiers with our own puppet leaders. Yeah. That is not acceptable. So they were, they were, um, the plan was to have, you know, a, a provisional government and then there would be elections and this would be democracy. And in the end, uh, de Gaulle bulldozed that. So yeah. now I'm in charge. I'm, I'm, I'm France. And by the way, we'll all vote for me and that will all be great. Anyway, this was a famous quote of the time, not from his speech. La France a perdu un bataille, mais la France n'a pas perdu la guerre. France has lost a battle, but France has not lost the war. And this yeah. was a, there was a famous poster going around. So at this point, you would say, well done, we clap. This is how de Gaulle became the leader of the Free French during the Second World War. Now let's talk about after the war. Whoa, whoa, let's slow down. There's already a lot that we've just talked about in terms of his, his he was not afraid to put himself at the front. Yeah. The, the speech was about de Gaulle as much as it was about France. Now let's talk about, this is, this is actually what, what triggered me to sort of want to talk about the Gaulle. Here's a, a section of the war which I knew nothing about and was fascinating. And this is around Vichy France. Yeah. So we should remember now that Germans have, um, there's been an armistice signed and the agreement with the French government was that the Germans would occupy effectively half of France. Yeah. But there was half of France which was not occupied by the Germans. In fact, there was a band around the, the sort of 
the coast that the Germans would take. Yeah. But there was what was called Vichy France, which was based in a town called, you're not going to believe this, Vichy. And it was. Clever that. But of course, more than that, there is the rest of the French Empire. There is the rest of the French Empire. And so who is the French Empire loyal to? They are loyal to Vichy France. And there is an, in, yeah. this is an important part. In fact, this is probably the key to this next piece where France, we must remember, is an empire. And so this was this was fascinating to me. By the way, the Vichy regime have already sentenced de Gaulle to four years imprisonment. And uh, on the second... So in other words, Vichy Francais... In absentia. In absentia, yeah. Eugène is. And by 2nd of August 1940, condemned to death. So let's be clear. Yeah. Vichy France, understandably, does not support this. And to your point, the empire, the French empire actually played this critical part. You might say, well, hang on a minute. What do you mean the French Empire? I had not understood this. The Americans at this point, with the surrender of the French armies, are now panicking, literally panicking. And they are panicking because they had this grand strategy for how they might fight another European world war. And that strategy rested upon the French stopping the Germans long enough for the Americans to rearm and come back to Europe. Yes. And now there is no France. This is bad. And then, even worse, they're saying, well, hang on a minute, there are there is an aircraft carrier in Guadeloupe. Yeah. So hang on a minute, this is now quite close to us. Yes. And if the Germans take control of this, we now have a port and an aircraft carrier. Within, oh, within spitting distance of the United of continent. And even United more States. exciting, there is, even to this day apparently, an island off Canada, which the French still own. So now the Americans are thinking, this is really bad. Yeah. If yeah. Vichy France folds and says to the Germans, you can have our fleet, our possessions, this is really bad. So yeah. Vichy France, which I had always imagined to be sort of this a uh, group of people who were saying, well, you know, we've lost the war. If you let us do this, we'll carry on. No, there was more strategically important. So, um, Vich- and, and, and of course, the same, the same applies to the British. 100%. So, obviously, we're less worried about the aircraft carrying Guadeloupe because that's an American kind of tech operational problem. And Gareth, but, what might we be worried about? But we are worried about the French fleet in North Africa, as well as various other parts of the French we are that so strike trade routes and what we would call uh, sea lines of communication. Absolutely right. So the the Italians were now in North Africa. Yeah. And the Italians were threatening uh, areas that had traditionally been under the influence of the French Empire. And so now everyone is not just worried that you know we've lost France. This is a problem. And by the way, just this is a different thing. You, you talked about the, the French fleet. There was a very, very famous, less talked about incident where the British concerned that the French fleet, which was enormous, by the way. So this was far in excess of any German fleet and actually notionally getting close to the size and power of the British fleet. The British fleet went to, I believe it was Mers el Kabir, which was the port where they were. And unfortunately, the British said, you must surrender your ships or scuttle them. And the French being understandably French, said, we will not do that. And so we opened fire. Um, And so you can imagine now the French are not very happy with us because we've opened fire on their own, their ships. So very bad. This isn't 
aligned Vichy French. These are free French, but we're worried about the. Shape. No, they they were Vichy. They were they Vichy, were Vichy they? but that but you to your point about free French, they were notionally under the command of Vichy. Um, but actually there were regional leaders who were making their own decisions. Yes. So in fact, okay. the, the admiral in charge of the French fleet at Merzel Kabir had said, the Germans will never get our yeah. fleet. Yeah. So they had they, they recognised this was a risk and they'd said, no, 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 no. Yeah. we will never, ever give you our fleet, yeah. but but we're also not going to give it to the British or we're not going to surrender yes. to the British. So which, anyway. is, which is understandable, but it's also arguably understandable as to why we would strategically need to do that. So we effectively declared war on France. We have, and you will hear this later. So of course, post-war, we we sort of quietly don't talk about this, but we fired on the French, yeah. and and arguably whether Vichy French or Free French, they are French. We'll we'll yeah. come back to that. So there was a, there was a battle in Madagascar, I think. There was. Well, we're really now going to our Second World <laughs> History. But um, anyway, yeah. on the 7th of August, um, Churchill is now starting to treat de Gaulle as the leader. And he has said, we will fund the Free French and we will settle the bill after the war. So actually, Churchill is now writing a cheque yeah. to de Gaulle the as this notional leader. Yeah. And it all, a separate letter guaranteed the integrity of the French Empire. This was a big thing for all French people that we wanted to keep the empire. De Gaulle persuaded Félix Eboué, that's pro- almost certainly now how it's pronounced, who was the governor of Chad, to switch his support to General de Gaulle from the Vichy France. And that in itself protected North Africa from the Italians because yeah. people, the Italians couldn't go through Chad. So now all of a sudden, de Gaulle is the British man. They didn't like him, you were right, but he was their man. The US, though, slightly different. As we've discussed, Vichy is a key... Well, France was a key pillar, and the French were saying, we need to keep our lines of communication communication open with Vichy. So they are now negotiating with Vichy France. They had an ambassador to Vichy France, yeah. which was blew my mind when I heard this. And so now there is a difference of, of, uh, of opinion between who is the French leader that we should follow. Yeah. For the British, it is de Gaulle, and for the Americans, we don't think it should be Vichy. We think that's a bad idea. So now we're going to segue, and by the way, we're clearly going to do this in two episodes, so I do apologise, Gareth, but this is a great story. So now we're going to go to this chapter, which I don't think anyone's ever heard about, unless you've read the fantastic book that I've got, and I'll, we'll put the details on that later. So we're now going to shift away from de Gaulle to someone else who we could have just as easily been doing this episode about a chap called Henri Giraud. It, it you know, flip a yeah. coin, yeah. and it was Giraud who was the leader of France as opposed to, so let's talk about him. He was an officer, same military academy, wounded in World War I, captured and escaped. Does this sound familiar to you? Um, even better, apparently French are brilliant at escaping. When he escaped, and he, he was successful in his escape, he pretended to be from a circus. Excellent. He had, I love that. I mean, that's if you wrote great. that into a script for a movie... They'd say, scratch okay, out the circus that, bit. That's no unbelievable. That. <laughs> um, he had taught de Gaulle when he was at the École de Guerre, the, right. the war school. Uh, he was a general in 1930, so this is a significantly more senior person. Yeah. 
And he had already disagreed with de Gaulle over the use of armour. So they had already butted heads a little bit, but Giraud was far more senior. 1940, Giraud is captured by the Germans. And so over the next two years, Giraud plans his escape from the Germans in order to get back to Vichy, France. He learns German, memorises a map of the area. He made a 150-foot rope. That's 46 metres for our European friends. I know we're keen on the, the differentiation. Out of twine, torn bedsheets, copper wire, which friends had smuggled into a prison for him. This is another film. He used a simple code embedded in his letters home, telling of his family of his plans to escape. And on the 17th of April, 1942, he lowered himself down the cliff of a mountain fortress and escaped. That's he, amazing. I'm, I'm trying to imagine the the type of person that he was as a general, but he's applying himself to... I mean, these are tactical things, you know, escape plans, memorising maps, what? writing what a secret codes. And again, I wonder whether this is great people of high-performing intellect can apply themselves to whatever the circumstances demand rather than it just being sort of a fluke of circumstance that somebody who is a great action hero yeah, is yeah. also a general. Yeah, I, yeah. I wonder whether this is actually... And, and I'm trying to think now about the generals that I know. Would they do it? Would they? Would they? You know, I, I know some that I can imagine being very much like that. Well, I'll, I'll ask you, how many of them are. would shave off their moustaches and wear a Tyrolean hat travelled to Shandau to meet a member of the British Special Operations Executive who provides with a change of clothes, cash and identity papers. So, Giraud is our hero. He is a... And, and the sliding doors moment, you yeah. can now see we could easily be doing just this. So, he has now slipped into Vichy, France. Yeah. And he has made his identity known and he has gone to Marshal Patin. So, Marshal Patin is now the head are the leader of Vichy France. Yeah. Actually, I think he loses power and there's arguments who's whether he's president or prime minister. But Giraud tries to convince Patin that Germany will lose and France must resist the German occupation. His views are, as we might imagine, rejected by Vichy government, who keeps saying, shut up. Yeah. Shut up. We don't the Germans are fine. This is this is fine. But they ref, but the Vichy government refused to return Giraud to the Germans. So now we sort of zoom out. The US are talking to Vichy because they don't want them to get the fleet or the French possessions, et cetera, et cetera. And the US are saying, wait a minute, this Giraud chap, he could lead France. He's, yeah, man. he's the man for yeah. us to do this. And by the way, the US are thinking this guy, de Gaulle, he is simply a puppet of the British. He is not this great leader. He is just the British are pushing him. And we don't want the Brits to tell us who to have. So now we've got two notional leaders of France, yeah. Giraud and de Gaulle. And, and Giraud is currently in France. He's in under Vichy, the France. Of the Vichy, under the protection of the Vichy. And de Gaulle is in London yeah. under the protection of the yeah. Vichy. So the Americans now say, this year we are going to, uh, we are going to, I was going to say, attack North Africa I don't know what the correct term for invading French territory and taking... Anyway, whatever the complicated word is. And uh, Giraud says, we will... I will support, Vichy will support... In fact, not Vichy, but I will support 
an Allied landing in French North Africa, but only if American troops are used. There must be no British troops. Um, And by the way, there's a fantastic thing where when they came to speak to, I think it was Giraud, I'll probably talk about this a bit later, they only had a British submarine. And so they put an American in charge of a British submarine to sort of say, there's no British here. This is an American submarine. Isn't it amazing the, how the, the grand strategy very, very quickly becomes about people's egos and it affects... Oh, my word. And, and, and it's affecting you know, the tactical operations. So you know, having to find a submarine, we don't have an American one, so I'll, we'll, we'll put an American crew into a British submarine. And you know, These are really minor things if you think about what's happening on the global stage can you imagine the brits and the americans banging their heads on the table saying we're trying to to get rid of the germans and you idiots can only talk about yourselves it gets worse eisenhower asked him to assume command of french troops in north africa during during torch okay giroux yeah i want you to be at the head of the free french forces in north africa what does giroux say I'm commander of the whole operation. Absolutely. I'm sorry? <laughs> you want to be in charge of all the military forces? Yes. And he said if, if he wasn't allowed to command all the military forces in North Africa, his honour would be tarnished and he would only be a spectator in the affair. You can imagine the British and Americans are like, shut up. Yeah. We, are, we are gathering forces to attack North Africa and you somehow think you should lead them? Let's just remember where we are. So now, so we're, we're in now the Americans talking to Giroux. Yeah. The British in, in London are not talking about... So the British and the Americans are both very, very nervous that they can't trust anyone. Yeah. They can't trust Giroux because he's Vichy. Yeah. They can't trust de Gaulle because he's de Gaulle. Have you heard this guy? And so we don't tell him about Operation Torch, but he finds out from British, a sympathetic British cabinet member and so what do you think? This is just the most magnificent and unexpected quote. So de Gaulle has been told that the British and Americans will be invading North Africa as part of Operation Torch. And what do you think de Gaulle said to wish them luck? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I would imagine there's an element of, you know, needing to be part of it. There are French 100%. forces there. This would be the strategic, the great leader thing to do, yeah. to say, Offering I wish you Godspeed. To be the, the leader of the French. And... De Gaulle's quote is this, very well, I hope the Vichyites throw them back into the sea. Incredible, yeah. It, it's amazing, isn't it? The, and there's a whole sort of conversation here around, you know, we, we, we try and explore what, what makes leaders good, what makes them bad. We, we're trying to work out if there are patterns here. And the, the amount of ego and arrogance and sense of entitlement is, 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 is astounding. But I wonder if that is also the same trait, just manifesting in a different way, that allowed de Gaulle to be the person who well, I, you know, I think jumped actually, on a radio now, now, and said, come to me, if, I Imagine will if you are the French... You might cheer at this. Hang on yeah. a minute. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, the Germans. We will defeat the Germans in North Africa and perhaps Europe. No, you did not put us in charge. You didn't tell me about it. Yeah. Actually, I hope it fails. So now, now you, now I think there's almost this element of I think the British and the Americans, 
particularly the British, have been a little bit, we get that you are the future. We want to support you, but we know you're difficult. And then he says, I hope you, I hope they throw you back into the sea. At this point, apparently, the chief of the Imperial staff, a general by the name of Alan Brooke, I think he summons or he invites de Gaulle to meet with him personally. And then he says this fantastic quote. He says, I understand your bitterness. Now overcome it. That is a strong statement of yeah. leadership. And remarkably, um, at that point, de Gaulle goes on the radio uh, and calls on Frenchmen everywhere to, and I quote, rise up, help the allies. You'll enjoy this next one. Join them without reserve. Fighting France demands you of it. So at that point, I think, you know, I'm laughing because he was told by the Brits. Yeah. I think there is a, a, a beautiful French, for, uh, French naval phrase that I was taught as, as when I joined Dartmouth, which was wind your neck in lofty, yeah. which is, <laughs> I think you should just now shut up and get on with yeah. it. And he did that. But there is an element your, of... Your discontent is noted. Yes. I'm now going to ignore it and carry on. Exactly. Yeah. But now we've got, we've got both the extreme loyalty and pride in France. Yeah. But we've also got the pragmatism and the this is what I'm going to do on his terms. It's and interesting. I think this is what we get yeah, to. and I, I think you know we we're going to get into the next episode about him becoming a statesman and, and clearly a great strategist. But the at the moment he says, you know, I hope they kick you back into the sea. Unbelievable. That is not a strategic move, but I think it does show a a level of absolute resolve for his belief in France and the French. And I think whilst it, it's difficult for us to understand why he would say that, and it's, it's certainly a slightly distasteful thing to say. It's an appalling thing to say. In the middle of a war yeah. where we're supposed to be allies, excepting the British did destroy the French fleet. But it shows, I think, you know, in, in, these, in these incredibly influential people who, who go on to, to become st great statesmen, the amount of self-belief, the amount of passion that they feel. This is and a think, very attractive thing. This is what we want from our leaders. We don't yeah. want leaders who say, oh, well, if you want me to do this, I'll do this. I think it's, also, it's not just an attractive thing. I think it's an essential thing to be able to have resolve throughout you know, lots of moving parts, lots of uncertainty to be focused on, on what it is you want to achieve. And I think sometimes that works very well and sometimes it doesn't. And of course, we are, by nature of doing the influencers episodes, we are, you know, reinforcing the survivor bias that we only tend to do these podcasts about people who did, who did great influential things. There are probably lots of French people who were just as passionate who who didn't get there and, yeah. and do these things. But it's not a strategic move and I think that's a really interesting dynamic because he is clearly a strategist. So whether a moment letting his emotion get the better of him or whether it was a deliberate message, part of crafting that narrative, or or whether it's it, it's actually it, it's a minor, a minor incident that post-war was actually a very, very useful, well, useful tool. You, you will be pleased to know this is the only time I could find where he said something as outrageous 
I am, of course, joking. He then continues <laughs> to do it. So let's carry on. So going back to this mini narrative, we've now, and maybe this is a good, uh, a good time to take a break, we've now got this really awkward situation. We have two leaders of France. We have Giraud, the American leader of France, and we have de Gaulle, who is the British-sponsored leader of France. So let's stop now, but let's come back in the next episode and uh, let's see how this resolves itself. Spoiler alert, we talk a lot about de Gaulle, but let's find out how this gets resolved. Brilliant. Cool. Well, we'll see you next week for uh, the next iteration of Charles de Gaulle.